This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. So, Jason, here it is, week 11, a shortened trading week. Nothing quiet, though, about the news flow. And that included things like heightened tensions between the U.S. and China. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. We've got more companies getting back to work or trying to figure out exactly what the plans are doing. And then we had some headlines, maybe green shoots, perhaps. U.S. states' jobless roles, they shrank for the first time during the virus pandemic. But nonetheless, we still have more than 40 million Americans have filed for those benefits in the past two and a half months. So this contradictory as people try to continually look forward. Well, and it was a week where industry by industry, we started to get a picture of where we go from here. We try over the course of the week to talk to lots of different people in lots of different businesses, be it the financial industry. And we spoke with Margaret Keene over at Synchrony about what she's seeing. They are, of course, a massive credit card issuer. We talked to Nancy Spielberg. She's a director. She understands where film is going from here. And Sal Khan, a frequent guest on this show, someone we talk to a lot. And listen, no industry, no business, no experience has been disrupted in many ways more than learning. So all that straight ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And let's not forget too, Huawei was in the news once again. So we caught up with Huawei USA's Chief Security Officer, Andy Purdy. And then we also heard about the private aviation industry. Interesting, of course, it shut down like everything else, but they're starting to see some new trends and new demand. So Andrew Collins, uh, the CEO and President of Sentient Jet, stopped by as well. First up though, we had to talk about where we are in the virus. That's right. We caught up with Dr. Joanne Roberts. She's the Chief Quality Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health. And this has been a go-to source for us, Mm -hmm. fair to say. We've talked to a lot of their senior doctors and senior officials because they have been on the front lines since the very beginning. The first recorded case of the virus in the United States, it was at their hospital. She helped frame where we are now and where we may be going. As far as where I think we are with the spread of the pandemic, um, and I think by and large, most of our country has done really well uh, in uh, physical distancing and masking and other other areas. I think we all know the challenges of bringing our country together around this. Um, I think we in healthcare are looking to early to mid-June to see what the effects are of the opening up that we really saw this Memorial Day because Everything that we do today will show up two or three weeks later in our hospitals when people get sick and start coming in. And we're watching that closely day by day. And so, uh, Dr. Roberts, as as Carol said at the top, you know, you guys were the first to see cases here in the United States. What have you learned about treatment? What have you learned about this disease that, that may be useful to those of us who uh, aren't, who weren't on the front end as much? Yeah, I think uh, what we're seeing uh, in the mass media is uh, borne out uh, with us locally as well. Uh, we just this morning uh, had a discussion of the use of remdesivir. Uh, mm-hmm. As you know, that's being um, released uh, more and more through Gilead. And um, we believe we have enough doses on hand to treat all of our patients that we currently have. It's not a magic bullet. It doesn't preclude any of the things that we all need to do around masking and social distancing. 
but it does seem to at least uh, lower the length of stay in our hospitals. And we are expecting more reports out soon. Hopefully that remdesivir will actually improve the mortality rates uh, and decrease the number of deaths. But it's just one piece of a bigger story that continues to evolve week by week. And how soon will we really know the, the efficacy of remdesivir? Is it weeks? Is it months? Like, what's the timeline there? I think, like I said, I think every week we see more science being released, um, mm-hmm. more studies being completed. I think within the next two to three weeks, we'll see more of the story around remdesivir, okay. as well as other agents that are in the pipeline. Is a second wave a given? Yes. It is. I think there's, we believe there's no doubt that a second wave will come. We don't know when it will come. We don't know how big it will be. Um, but we, we are certainly putting together plans inside of Providence to try to detect the second wave um, early and to prepare for it. As you know, in the 1918 flu pandemic, it was the second wave that was the big killer Five times as many people died in the second wave as in the first wave. And so we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, we're, we're in a breathing space where we can all get ready for the next wave. So what's the science behind that, that a second wave is more deadly? And would that necessarily be the case with this virus? It would, I, we don't know. We are, we're in a position of not knowing what the second wave will look like. Um, I wouldn't say why. I don't think any of us expect the second wave will be worse. But we have to prepare as if it could be worse. And that's Dr. Joanne Roberts, Chief Quality Officer over at Providence St. Joseph Health. And Carol, I really felt this way. And you and I were communicating via Mm -hmm. instant message right after we got done with this interview. This was the interview I needed this week to really understand where we are and where we're going. A reality check to some extent, some optimism, but certainly some realism too. Yeah, absolutely. She took us through the steps. You need testing, you need therapies, and then ultimately you need a vaccine. And one of the things that stayed with me, Jason, is when we asked her, is a second wave a given? And she simply said, yes, don't know when and don't know how big. And that explains some of the nervousness that continues to stay, certainly in our society, in the markets, and in the business community at large. But I do always feel like I get everything that's going on when it comes to the virus. When she sits down and talks to us, we get it explained. Absolutely. And the optimism clearly is around our preparedness when it comes back around again. Coming up, our conversation with Margaret Keene. She's the CEO of Synchrony Financial. Really has some great insight on what consumers are up to. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Businessweek radio show. And now let's get to our conversation with Margaret Keene. She's the CEO of Synchrony Financial. I'd say going into the pandemic, the consumer was very strong. We were were doing really well. Uh, Sales were strong. Payments were coming in. The consumer was really acting uh, very responsibly, and we felt like we were going to have you know, uh, a great year. Um, then the pandemic came along. And obviously, you know, the initial onset of that really shut down most of the uh, retail landscape. And, you know, we saw sales, and we said this in our earnings, down uh, averaging about 32 to 34%. Um, what we've seen since then, though, is definitely a bit of an, uh, a, a comeback. Our sales are down now 10%. Hmm. Uh, so certainly the consumer is 
um, back out and shopping. And, uh, you know, we're seeing it across the U.S. So it isn't even just in the states that I would say are completely open. It's it's across the board. Wow. Well, that's so, really... You know, we're going to pay close attention to that. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, it's interesting. We've been having so many conversations, certainly here at Bloomberg, you know, that it feels like to some extent we're flying blind when it comes to the economy. We know the past data points looking backwards are not going to be good. We get that, right? But we are wondering about what kind of a bounce back do we get on the other side? So you're saying consumers are coming back. I mean, what kind of indications are, you know, what are they spending? And and, and you said it's up about 10% or what can you tell us in terms of? Well, it's down 10% from where okay. it was at the beginning. So we dropped, our sales were at about 70%. They dropped 32-ish. Then they, they've come back. Now they're down 10% from what they were pre-pandemic. So that's a pretty big swing. Um, what I would say is, um, you know, it's the things you're reading about, um, you know, for instance, power sports. We're not big in power sports, <laughs> but our power, power sport sales are up 100%. So people are buying things that they can play with at home. Uh, and we're seeing things related to the home be very strong, whether that's... Um, home furnishings or, or things that uh, people are doing to fix up their homes. So we're certainly seeing strength there. Um, you know, we were talking about uh, bicycles, adult bicycles you can't really get. <laughs> right. Sold out. So it's really been, I think what's happening with the consumer, there's a couple of things we, we believe. One is people have given up vacations. They're staying at home and planning to stay at home. So they're fixing up their homes and doing activities around the house with their children and their families. I think, uh, you know, we think that's a positive, and, and I think that's where consumers are spending. Obviously, you know, we have very strong online partners. We're definitely seeing online being a big part of, of that process as well. Um, but, I, you know, I, honestly, I think we're, 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 probably, um, we're, we're probably a bit more positive than we thought we were going to be at this point when we first started out here. Yeah, now, interesting. I think there's a lot of stimulus out there, and that's something we've got to pay attention to. There's still a lot of stimulus, and I think... What we've been saying is we got to make it through the summer, see when that stimulus runs out, and then where do we where do we stand? And and we probably won't have a good read until third quarter. And so, Margaret, when you think about the retail environment, obviously, so many things have been shut down. You've had well-known brands uh, go bankrupt, and you know some may restructure, some may never come back. What's the net effect of that? for basically sort of the, the world at large, but also for your business, this shift to online, where I know you're very active as well. But break that down for us if you can. Sure. You know, I, I would say, look, retail has been going through a, a transformation for quite a while. I think the pandemic and the fact that people had to shut their doors just accelerated some of what was going to happen over time. Uh, so we're seeing that, you know, in some of our partners as well as many other retailers that are not our partners and I think what's happening is you're seeing retailers who are strong becoming even stronger, and I think that will continue. Um, you know, I do believe that there's been a lot of view that retail is dead. I do not believe retail is dead. I think people like to shop. I think we will over-retail, and I think the strong retailers will certainly survive this and probably be stronger in the end. I do think retail has to have a digital strategy as well. They need to be able to be where that customer is shopping. And I think from a customer behavior perspective, we certainly have seen a continued shift and an acceleration of people shopping digitally, and I think that will continue. So I think there are certain things that people may have never thought of buying online before, but are buying. 
online and have gotten comfortable with that through this process. And that's going to shift consumer behavior, I think, going forward. What but do I you do s- think nope. people will still shop. People will still shop. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a social thing to some extent, and people enjoy actually going out and feeling uh, merchandise. And I think, you know, maybe in New York, it's going to take a a little while to come back, but, you know, until people feel safer. What are you seeing in terms of delinquencies and people's ability to, to actually pay their credit cards? So this is this is probably one of the more interesting things that we're trying to figure out. You know, consumers are paying their credit card. So about... 75% 75% of the customers who initially put themselves into a deferred payment status have actually come out of that and are paying their accounts. So we actually are seeing good payments right now, uh, which is another thing that I think has us a little bit at pause to understand why is that. Now, is it the stimulus? Is it the fact that people aren't spending money elsewhere on discretionary, so they're paying their credit cards and their, their obligations? Um, you know, we have a lot of people who are receiving benefits, so is that helping? Probably all these things are helping. You know, the other is a big one is, you know, people aren't driving, so gas prices right. are down even if they are driving, so there's extra dollars there. So right now, our, our, our performance in our book is, is, is good. Uh, we're very cautious on this, though, because we still believe that, you know, we got to see how people come out of this after the stimulus runs out, and more importantly, what does the, the job market look like? How many people are still at work? I think we're still um, very cautious on this particular area. And that's Margaret Keene, the CEO of Synchrony Financial. And as we said going into the conversation, Carol, you know, this is a company that really has an intimate window into how consumers are feeling, but also how retailers are faring amid all of this. We've seen a raft of bankruptcies. We've seen demand really ebb. And you do wonder what the window looks like going forward. Right. And if stores, more stores shut down and people don't have to use their cards and more things are done online, you do wonder what will be ultimately longer term the impact on a company like Synchrony Financial. You're listening to Bloomberg this week. Coming up, a conversation on managing the wealth of athletes with Joe McLean, managing partner at Intersect Capital. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. And, of course, all of this happening in real time as news was happening around us. And that included conversations about the sports world, which we know it's very tricky getting that back to normal. Absolutely. Joe McLean, he's the managing partner over at Intersect Capital. And you hear Intersect Capital and you think, all right, what does this have to do with sports? A lot, actually, because he is advising athletes on their money. From the time that they sign their first contract, he has an amazing sort of roster of folks, but also a very methodical plan on how they should be thinking about their money. And in a world without sports, that's even trickier. Basketball is... I'm not as optimistic, although if you talk to the players, they're very optimistic. They have yeah. the best relationship with their commissioner, frankly, um, and, and the commissioner has been very candid. Um, but I know he's also been very cautious. You know, I, I, We have some players that are still sitting, Americans that are sitting in China waiting for that league to start, and they've been there now for months. They've quarant- they quarantined for two weeks. They've now been there for over two months. Every player is in one city, and they're still not ready to go. So... I'm not saying China's a leading indicator of what the NBA can do in the States, but there's still no movement there. And it's tough to say that there'll be movement in the States until I see some positive momentum there. 
What about other sports? All right, so you talked about golf, you think, first. Yeah. You're not as optimistic about basketball. What else? So baseball, you know, they're, they're a bit stalled with, with the conversations they're trying to have. You know, mm. it's, they've already come out. Obviously, there's going to be a reduced schedule, um, which means reduced salaries. Um, they're still also fighting for some of the, the, the details. Like, um, you know, in baseball, you really want to get your service time under your belt each year. And if they don't play a certain amount of games, they may not qualify for that. So the players want to make sure that all their rights are protected, um, not just not just that it's safe to play, but that also they're not giving in on on anything they they wouldn't give in on a regular season. So I think baseball has has a, a good opportunity to come back, but it's surely uh, not, nothing in the summer. And and football, uh, I, I think, is the same. You know, they until each state starts opening up and giving. Um, you know, the players, the opportunity to even train, let alone play. Um, I still don't see anything in the summer there. They, they're, they've already been told they can't take physicals right. uh, until mid, mid-June, mid late June. So um, it's going to be a long wait, long, long wait for all of us. Well, Joe, let's talk about baseball if we can for a second, because the economics there, I think, are really interesting. And, and this really plays, I think, into a lot of what you talk about with, with your clients. Um and, you know, I had a chance to catch up earlier in the week with Rachel Luba, who is the agent to Trevor Bauer, as you know. And, you know, one of the things she said was that they are so far apart in, in part because there is it feels like a fundamental disagreement on the economics and sort of who should kind of bear the burden of this. And I do wonder for someone who is advising uh, baseball players and others about their, their wealth, what you make of this argument between the owners and the players. Well, in in my estimation, baseball has their players association has always had one of the strongest strongest teams in place for the players. Yeah. Um, and, and that has led to some incredible economics on behalf of the players. However, you know, the, the, the problem now is you know, there's some, some athletes making 20, 30, $40 million a year, and they're already seeing a $10 million pay cut. Um, yeah. Nobody's feeling sorry for them, but um, there's going to be a point where they've got to make, have some compromises where in the past they haven't. Um, and then every once in a while, the owners want to take out, you know, for a spin, the whole idea of, of salary caps, mm. um, which obviously in baseball don't exist. They do exist in, in, in other sports um, that the players have always fought against. Uh, so there's going to be a compromise, I, I think, because they know how important it is to get the game out because, in, in fairness, the television has been strong. Yeah. Um, but, but the popularity hasn't been there. So you don't want to go away for an entire season, um, I don't think, because you'll lose a lot of momentum. And that's Joe McLean, managing partner at Intersect Capital. Love catching up with him because mm-hmm. he does represent athletes across the spectrum. So many professional athletes on the sidelines, as it were, right now, really on the sidelines, not the ones they're used to, trying to get back to work, trying to figure out not just their health and safety, but their financial worth right now, Carol. I got to say, Jason, one of the things that stuck with me was what he said about his players, that they were realizing all the cause and effect that they have on so many others by them not playing, you know, seeing that whole sports infrastructure that's impacted. And he said that some of them were giving up their income to help out some of those other folks uh, that were also put out of work uh, as a result of the virus. So I really, that really just kind of stayed with me. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we talk online learning with Sal Khan of Khan Academy. He has seen a surge as more than a billion children worldwide have been impacted by school closures because of COVID-19.
Well, and interesting to hear from him what's temporary and what may be permanent in a world that we know is utterly changed. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations Carol and I had this week on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. And Jason, of course, we last caught up with him, meaning Sal Khan, when we were at the Harvard Business School. We were doing a live remote TV and radio. Uh, he is Harvard B School class of 2003. He's also, of course, the founder of Khan Academy. It's a nonprofit that set out to provide uh, a great education to all students around the world. And we know so many students have been impacted, understandably so, because of the virus. So to catch up with him, find out what they've been doing to help those kids who are now at home learning from home, and also to find out how much of this stays with us longer term. We started seeing our traffic pick up in Asia, even in January and February because of closures there. But then in March, when you had the closures in the U.S. and frankly, the rest of the world, we've seen our traffic, depending on the week, be 250 percent, 300 percent of normal. Uh, You know, we we were serving 20 million students per month pre-COVID. We're seeing the absolute number of students go up about 60 or 70 percent, and they're spending 60 or 70 percent more time Mm. per student. So on a daily basis, we had about 30 million minutes of learning per day. And now we're seeing closer to 80 or 90 million minutes of learning per day. Wow. Wow. That is remarkable. And what have you learned from looking at that? Are there certain things that that people are especially focused on? I mean, I know most students, I mean, they're having to do all their learning online, but but I wonder uh, as you go as you go down into the data, what is it showing you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's essentially everyone doubling down on what they were already doing on Khan Academy before. Yeah. Uh, even before the crisis, about half of our usage was what we call teacher-directed usage. This is teachers using it in a more formal way in their classroom, and it seems like that continues to be the case. We are most known for uh, our depth in math, where it's mm-hmm. not just videos, but exercises starting in even pre-K all the way through college. And so there's still a lot, a lot of hem- heavy emphasis there, but we're seeing a lot of usage of our science content English and language arts, our early learning app with Khan Academy Kids, uh, and uh, some of our standardized test prep. We, we have a partnership with the College Board around the SAT as well. So we're, what do you think is going to happen with that? Because you are increasingly seeing, because of the virus, schools back off of students having to have those tests. But I do feel like there's been a trend away from that. Do you think that will ultimately pick up momentum? Oh, around the whole uh, testing optional or even not using uh, yeah. the ACT or the ACT? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, and I've been talking to folks in the state here in California. I see both sides of the issue. People don't want people to index too heavily on one test. It causes anxiety. Not every student performs equally on, you know, they're not an equal test taker. With that said, it's pretty clear that things like these standardized tests, in conjunction with other data points like grades and recommendations, do correlate pretty high with college readiness. And so when you take some of those things out, you do have to ask, well, what is going to replace it? A lot of people forget the history. The reason why the SAT was even created was because the 100 years ago, it was so unequal, you had to essentially go to a famous school to get into a famous school. Uh, And then the SAT emerged, and then it became more of a meritocracy. So it has to be replaced with something else. One possibility is... Maybe things like Mastery on Khan Academy could be viewed as another, uh, and I wouldn't use it viewed as a replacement, but it could be viewed as another way to understand students' readiness. 
Yeah. And what's appealing about that, it's not just based on how you perform on one Saturday morning. You can always improve it, and just by the virtue of working on it, you're learning more. Talking about sort of the inequalities that the SAT and, and other standardized tests were meant to combat, and, and obviously that is a debate that will rage on for however long those tests exist. One of the other inequalities it feels like this pandemic has laid bare is around technology. And I wonder what you make of that and what you've learned and, and what we all should be taking away from this in terms of what sort of access students of all shapes and sizes and socioeconomic status need in order to really learn. Yeah, and I don't think I'm telling anything that's surprising to folks, but as we get into this COVID crisis, not just to keep learning on a platform like Khan Academy, but frankly, just to stay connected with folks, right. to stay connected with friends and family, it's, it's been a lifeline for, for most of us. And in many parts of the country, there's 20, 30 percent of the population that does not have devices at home or reasonable internet access at home. And so that, frankly, has always been a problem. People have talked about the digital divide. And now with this whole stay-at-home order and schools having to close physically, it's become that much worse. The silver lining, if there is one, is that because it's become so urgent, you're seeing government, school districts, corporations take action like they've never taken before. Uh, New York City public schools, they distributed almost 300,000 laptops in a matter of weeks. They got the local telecom carriers to give free internet access. Miami-Dade did something similar, uh, Las Vegas, Los Angeles. So one silver lining is because it's such an urgent need, a lot of the digital divide hopefully will get closed because there's a lot more uh, motivation to do it. But obviously you need that access if you're able to tap into everything else, uh, like Khan Academy or anything else. Yeah, that's a good point, because that's the thing we're trying to figure out too, Sal, is, you know, how much stays with us. So I love to hear those stories, you know, about free Wi-Fi and the equipment being, you know, distributed to those who didn't have it. How much of it do you think stays with us on the other side of it? I think it's got to stay. I can't imagine a world where they've done it and then uh, they have to take it back. You know, the, the heavy lifting, frankly, has already been done. And every school district that we've always talked about, you know, we've always talked about the value of personalized learning, about students uh, being able to learn in a way that's not bound by time or space, and, and teachers be able to get data of when kids are doing homework and things like that. And everyone intellectually agrees with it, but then they would say, but there's 10% of the kids who don't have Internet access at home, so we can't do this innovation for the entire classroom. And so now that there's been a will and a desire uh, and, and, and action taken to close the digital divide, I, I can't imagine that we'll go back on that. So, Sal, as you think about a world in which we are, con- you know, remain concerned about health and safety and we're rethinking what school looks like, we know that there's some amount of online learning we can do. We think about hybrid situations where, you know, maybe you have some kids in the classroom, some kids remote learning. What's feasible? I mean, knowing this world as well as you do, what is a feasible way that we can really integrate technology into some sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of hybrid solution? Yeah, and it's pretty clear that this coming back to school is going to have to be hybrid in some way, shape, or form. There's going to be kids whose families don't feel comfortable sending them. They might have health issues or a family member might, you know, they might have a senior, you know, the grandparent lives with them. Uh, and so I think school districts are, and, and colleges, are really trying to figure out how do you do this in a world where some kids might be there, but then there's half the kids who are watching from home. So the reality is they're going, they will have to lean more on what you could call asynchronous tools like Khan mm-hmm. Academy, where kids can learn at their own time and pace, and then teachers can monitor. 
and then leverage video conferencing, whether it's Zoom or Google Meets or whatever, more, uh, even when they are live with the students because there's going to have some uh, subset of the kids who aren't there. And when you, when you lean more on these types of tools, you know, I've been, I've been talking to a lot of teachers about this, it's always been the case that a, a lecture can be a little bit not engaging for a lot of students, and it's even more so if you're doing a video conference but you're lecturing the whole time. That might as well be a video. Right. And so this is really pushing teachers and schools to think about how do we make it much more interactive? How do we pull those kids who are watching from home into the conversation and, and have them interact? Sal, what role do you think online learning, virtual learning, will have ultimately on higher education? I know people already get degrees, but I'm thinking about those institutions where, you know, part of the experience, a big part of it is being on campus somewhere uh, among other students. And I do wonder, especially as higher education has gotten so expensive, you know, whether or not there might be some kind of mix going on in the future. That's what I think, too. I think this crisis has been a forced unbundling of what higher education offers. It offers essentially three things. It offers an education, like you will learn this set of skills. It offers socialization, being able to hang out in the quad and throw the Frisbee or go to parties on weekends or hang out in the dorm and talk about your, your life dreams with, with folks that you've, you've met. Uh, and then it does credentialing. And I think we've talked about in the past that this is the direction that we might go in anyway, regardless, but you're seeing record numbers of kids are deferring, you know, even to very prestigious universities because they're like, well, I really wanted to pay that tuition because I wanted to hang out with kids in the quad and have that experience. And, and they're realizing that they can get some of the learning just fine virtually on, you know, virtual community college or on a MOOC or some other type of platform. So I think it's going to be really interesting. My gut sense is education as a whole, you might see a little bit of an unbundling where there will always be certain pieces that are happening on video conferencing virtually, especially for older students, uh, college-age students or adult learners. And then for those who want that in-person experience, there's ways for them to get it. That's Al Khan, the founder of Khan Academy. And Jason, this is one of the worlds. I feel like education and healthcare, they have been slow to innovate. And I do think the impact of the world being shut down by the virus, we're going to see some big changes. And I do think that includes online learning. Well, and I dare say not to be overly glib, but you know, it's one thing to get a kick in the butt. This is a kick in the teeth in many ways for the world of education. And you do wonder the college presidents that you and I have talked to, right. the parents that we are and that we talk to all the time, everyone's thinking about it from K through college, how learning will be different. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour. We're going to hear about the future of digital fitness with Jason LaRose of Equinox Media. Man, they've been pivoting to more digital offerings of fitness for all of those who are at home. Well, and also, if you want to get out, you might not feel like getting on a commercial flight mm -hmm. and maybe you have the means to get on a private jet. Andrew Collins, he's the CEO of Sentia Jet, certainly seeing a boost in his business and thinking about how it may be different going forward. And... Nancy Spielberg, Carol. Yeah, it's an interview we were really looking forward to. Yes, folks, you recognize the name. It's the little sister of Stephen. Uh, I got to say, just talking about their growing up, what their parents did to really foster uh, creativity uh, in she and her siblings was really wonderful. And also just getting her thoughts about how do we make films going forward. So a really wonderful conversation. All that ahead. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. 
Boogaloo. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today, well, we're bringing you some of the most important and we hope informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. And Jason, one of the conversations we had was with the sentient jet president and CEO, Andrew Collins. Now, understandably, demand just dropped off as soon as the world shut down. But now what they're seeing is demand come back and people who now view private aviation as a necessity rather than as a luxury. That's right. Uh, Love talking about flying private. Also, we always love talking about fitness and the movies. We heard about the fitness side from Jason Rose over at Equinox and the movies from Nancy Spielberg. Yep, you recognize the last name. Yeah, absolutely. And we know, Jason, that Huawei was in the news once again this week, a Canadian judge ruling that the company's CFO will have to stay under house arrest as our extradition hearings continue. There's also, let's not forget, the backdrop of once again increased tension between the United States and China over many, many different matters, including China really stepping up its uh, moves to really control Hong Kong. So with all of that happening, Jason, we got a chance to catch up with Huawei Technologies USA's Chief Security Officer, Andy Purdy. Well, the effort against uh, Ms. Meng, our Chief Financial Officer, is part of the overall effort the last couple of years by the U.S. government to carpet bomb Huawei uh, out of existence. And in terms of the impact on the company, the decision involving Ms. Meng and, and the process for extradition will take uh, quite a number of months, um, if not years, uh, before there might be an actual trial in the Eastern District of New York. And we have great confidence in the legal systems of Canada uh, and the U.S., uh, so we, we feel like uh, she'll be vindicated uh, in the end. But right now, this, this campaign against Huawei, uh, the recent ramping up of, of pressure on American companies' ability to sell to Huawei, even through international companies, is going to have a tremendous negative impact on American jobs. You know, it's interesting, you know, that this is going on amid a week or two where we are seeing, once again, heightened tensions uh, and back and forth between the head of the United States, President Trump, and, of course, Chinese President Xi Jinping. And what? How do you see this? Uh, you know, you've got to run your business amid kind of all of this fury, and we're trying to figure out: is it rhetoric, or is it going to turn into actions that ultimately impact both China and the United States? Well, there's certainly been an impact uh, on on our company. Right. Uh, the impact was about twelve billion dollars last year, and we haven't been able to estimate what the impact will be this year. Of course, it's it's complicated by the added factor of, of the pandemic. But you look at the overall situation, the geopolitical situation between China and the U.S. is what we're talking about. And that's exacerbated now by the U.S. presidential campaign. So the the, the competition among President Trump and uh, uh, former Vice President Biden to outmaneuver uh, the other in terms of anti-China rhetoric, kind of a new red scare kind of thing, um, indicates that, that this battle is, is going to go on, at least through the election, and there doesn't seem to be rational discussion, and people don't seem to care about the fact that American jobs are going to be lost as a result. And can you quantify, you know, the, the jobs piece of this? I understand that obviously things are complicated but in terms of the pandemic, and it remains to be seen what the total economic impact is. But help us understand, you know, you guys have several offices ar- around the country here. What has it meant? And, and maybe help us understand sort of the, the one-two punch, as it were, of this action and this uh, confrontation between the United States and China, as well as the pandemic synthesized that for us, if you can, Andy. Well, in terms of within the U.S., we have two issues. We have the issue of whether or not Huawei can sell to uh, American companies. 
and right now we're serving uh, parts of rural America. Uh, and the other issue is the ability of American companies, nearly 300, want to be able to sell to Huawei. So in terms of our global revenues, which last year, despite all this, were up about 19%, um, you know, we were impacted about $12 billion. Right. Um, but the, uh, the, the annual amount that we procure from American companies is not just to serve our customers in America. It's our global market. At its height, we had about 30 or 32 percent of all Huawei global components came from American companies, and they're primarily in the semiconductor industry. And you can see in the last couple of months, uh, and they can speak for it a lot better than than I can, uh, that American um, semiconductor companies and their associations, trade associations, have basically been saying, look, the limitations on the ability of American companies to sell a Huawei is averaging about $12 billion a year. That is estimated to be between forty and 50,000 direct jobs, not to count the indirect jobs. And so the fact is, well, you know, we're fighting for our survival. Um, we're going to be okay, uh, and we would like to continue to buy from American companies, and, and I, as an American, want to be able to see those jobs uh, continue. If we have to, we'll go elsewhere, and then we won't come back, and those American jobs will go away, and, and that's not going to help America. And in the long term, it's not going to hurt Huawei. And the, the strategy, you talk about the bigger picture, the strategy is that the U.S. wants to hurt Huawei to hurt China because they are, are afraid of the rise of China economically and militarily. So, so that's really at the heart of it. And so instead of promoting greater innovation of technology by America, they're trying to hurt Huawei. And that's not going to help America vis-a-vis China in terms of the long-term competition, which is which is very important. That's Huawei Technologies USA Chief Security Officer Andy Purdy. And Jason, we've talked to him several times over the last couple of years. And at many times, it was with the backdrop of increased tensions between the United States and China. And here we were again. Well, and this company in many ways and technology and intellectual property and national security, they all collide. They all sit at this nexus. And it's such an important thing to understand as we try to find a way forward with China. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Jason LaRose of Equinox Media on the pivot to digital fitness, and now how the virus is changing all of us when it comes to our overall health. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations, interesting conversations we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. There were so many, Jason. Absolutely. And we love talking about fitness for sure. We also know that that business has changed dramatically. Boutiques are closed. Big box gyms are closed for the most part as well. So how are people working out? Well, they're doing it, as they say, on the line. We caught up with Jason LaRose. He's the CEO of Equinox Media. They've got a new app and they are learning a lot about their customers. What's interesting though is we started on this journey you know, more than a year ago and we started on the journey because we knew that squeezing fitness in doesn't always work into a busy schedule. We knew that there were lots of reasons that our members, particularly at Equinox, couldn't always make it to a club. Um, while we had a long list and we were talking with them, we, we never anticipated a year ago that the list would include pandemic. So now we're seeing you know, more demand than ever for people trying to continue their fitness regimens while they're, uh, you know, while they're at home. And we've been, uh, been rolling out really quickly to try to meet those demands because uh, you know, our, our members certainly have been, uh, been raising their hand looking for, uh, looking for an opportunity to keep it going. 
tell us about what you guys were doing pre-COVID-19 and what you are doing now. Um, sure. So the, the vision here has always been to build something that's multi-brand, that's multi-modality, and something that's in real life and on demand altogether. Um, we believe that there, there was space for it and there wasn't anyone who was able to deliver that in the marketplace. So what we had done is, you know, partnered with some of the very best brands in the fitness space, like SoulCycle, like Equinox, to bring great experiences on demand. You know, it's, it's great to find those experiences when you make it in real life. What's challenging sometimes is then when you, when you get home, sometimes that content can be uh, a little, little more underwhelming. And so we worked really hard, uh, you know, to build our own production facility and to bring the best of those brands in real life to an on-demand experience. That continues to be true. Um, you know, we spent a year building it, building the technology, building the television studio, building the library. What's changed is really, you know, the pandemic has put us in a position where we've needed to support our members faster. And right. so we've worked really hard to get out to a much larger audience faster than we anticipated. And, and while we, we've always been talking with our members, it's been interesting to see how their workouts have changed in this kind of a world versus, you know, a, a time when there was a little bit more freedom. So how have their workouts changed? And I do wonder, because you can see kind of what they're using, how long they're using it for. Are there patterns emerging, Jason, in terms of what they like more or less or in greater quantities during this time than maybe they would like during a non-pandemic? Yeah, you know, there really have been some interesting things. I think, you know, the first one that stood out for me, and this is, you know, this has been a personal part of the journey as well, is, is how big meditation has become. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the mental uh, side of this, um, you know, just the need for mindfulness has probably been, been brought to the forefront for many of us. And so we're seeing amazing completion rates on our meditation classes overall, and it's been super popular. And, and even for me, it's become part of my regimen. So, you know, that's been a, a piece of it. The second thing is we're seeing a lot more body weight exercises than we anticipated. Of course, you know, we, we thought we would be in a world where our members would be, you know, using uh, access that they have to the clubs along with Varus to, to provide a, a complimentary experience when they're, when they're in their apartments or their homes and they may not have as much access to equipment. We're seeing more, more and more body weight in there. Um, but it's interesting for us also seeing how many double workouts we've seen, you know, people putting shorter time frames together, maybe a 20 minute workout together with a 45 minute workout and just going back to back, which, um, you know, we, we didn't necessarily anticipate, but watching some of that, be that behavior has been, uh, has been cool. And then lastly, you know, running has probably shocked us. Of right. course, running is a huge modality and people excited about it. Um, you know, we started Precision Run as a wonderful brand uh, with a studio down on 21st Street. It's a treadmill-based uh, science-backed running running class, and it's a really cool place. Um, people have been dying for outdoor runs, you know, yeah. less access to treadmills, and people just want to get out if they're in a place where they can do that safely. And so our outdoor runs, as we've been testing those, have been incredibly strong. And, and so all those things have been just a little different in this yeah. world than we anticipated up front, you know? Jason, I am curious how many of the people that you think are actively engaging with you online right now stay there as they come back also to physical locations? Well, Carol, I definitely agree it's going to be both, you know, a digital and physical world. And I certainly believe that. Pre-pandemic, we had 60% of the members at Equinox who had some form of digital fitness app on their phones already. 
So they were living in a digital and physical world, and they were using that digital to augment the times that they couldn't make it to a club or to a studio or something else. So I think that will remain. I, what I hope is, is that this newfound focus or maybe, maybe continued focus on health and well-being means that we'll all get into some healthier habits over this time and, and that those things will stay with us. But certainly we saw that mix of, of physical and digital beforehand. We expect it to continue. You know, Jason, I, w- I wanted to ask you sort of about this mega trend toward toward a healthier life, because before you got into this gig, uh, you ran a big chunk of Under Armour as president of North America. And, you know, that was a place where you guys were also thinking about sort of the physical and the digital. You bought Map My Run. You're sort of integrating all of that in. And, and I do wonder whether this is a trend in your estimation that was happening and that this epidemic or pandemic has sort of accelerated. Has it changed it? Like, what, what, what are the sort of contours? Because this is something you've been watching for a couple of decades now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, I think it's definitely an accelerant. I don't think that there's much question that this is changing all of us a bit in terms of what our, our overall habits look like. But the need for time has been going on for a lot longer than the last couple of months. Yeah. You know, we've all, we've all struggled for that currency no matter what. And what we find is the, the more healthy you want to be, the busier you may be also. And so time, it, it becomes even harder to find. And investing it in these things, um, you know, from a digital standpoint, just gives you a little bit more freedom for those days that work, travel, or a sick child, or, or, you know, just a long day, or whatever it might be, gets in the way. And so we, we always have seen digital being, you know, uh, an and solution and not an or solution. Um, but but we've, we've watched how that's progressed. And I think for us, you know, we certainly happen to be at a moment where we can help more of our members and riders than we thought, uh, you know, in May of, of 2020. So we're, we're fortunate for that. And that's Jason LaRose, CEO of Equinox Media, Carol. And we both love fitness. We love catching up with entrepreneurs and managers in this space. We know the world of fitness has changed dramatically. I think the big question, which Jason really spoke to is, what does it look like going forward now that we have this new channel of sorts, this new way of working out. Well, and he answered it, right? He said he expects digital as an and solution rather than an or. And I do wonder about that. I love going to studios to work out, but I also have loved the convenience of being able to open up something online and just do it, you know, in my home and it'd be so convenient. So we'll see how much of that sticks around. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, how the coronavirus is transforming the world of private aviation. Calling all private jets. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. And one of those conversations, Jason, was with Andrew Collins. He's the president and CEO of Sentient Jet. And, you know, they understandably initially saw drops in service and demand, but now it is back and it's got some interesting new trend lines. We are seeing, uh, you know, from a business standpoint, you know, I think a very interesting time. We saw the reaction to the pandemic in late March where we saw a lot of our flying volume drop uh, initially. And I, I can tell you that walking into April, it originally looked like we were probably about 10% of what our volume projects to be. And so that would have been about 100 legs. And I mean, it was an absolute low point. But rapidly, we started to see people that started to think about private jets a little bit different. And honestly, I'm seeing people behave, 
you know, usually this is more about a, a lifestyle or a business productivity tool, but it's almost migrated over to a utility during this time. And uh, what we're seeing are people that want to control their environment. They want to control how many touch points, you know, they're exposed to. And so because of that, we're seeing a lot of new entrants, and our volume has come back gangbusters in May. And, you know, I, I could tell you it's a reaction to the pandemic, but uh, I tend to think that we're probably going to see a, uh, a whole set of new entrants to flying privately based on this. And so, Andrew, as you, as you think about this and you put it in the context of previous crises, both financial and, and otherwise, and, and obviously 9-11 is the comparison that so many people make – in terms of the the scope of this, and obviously two very different uh, tragedies in a way, but obviously that was probably the last time we saw travel just effectively go away for some period of time, although shorter uh, in duration. Then, you know, how do you think about the future of travel overall, and especially the future of air travel? So I think that air travel has changed forever. Um, I think that the way that we think about commercial airlines, you know, last year, I think two and a half million people a day would process through the TSA and commercial airlines. In April, it was somewhere around 90 to 100,000. So it's an industry that's been impacted, and I'm sure you've talked about it so much. And it's one that is so capital intensive that it feels like it's a tough model to pursue moving forward. I think really, truly, this notion of control this notion of a limited environment, I don't know that that's the long term, but I certainly see in the, you know, the next 12 to 18 months um, really a focus on making sure people are, are at their least kind of exposed to crowds. Um, as far as the crises goes, you mentioned 9-11. 9-11 is actually when our business started to really uh, to, to kind of shine, unfortunately, um, from the incident. But Commercial was only down for a little bit. Right. I was also here for the financial crises. And in the financial crises, a lot of the segment disappeared. This mm-hmm. is very different. In private, you know, not only did you have a high capital overhang coming in and a robust stock market, but we were in Q1 seeing record flying. So I think the exposure was significant. And I would just simply say that uh, as I watch kind of this, this whole volume increase in our business, it just tells me that people are probably going to consider private, whether that's aviation, whether that's a villa, whether that's some form of, you know, a limited exposure environment. I think that's where we are for a little bit. Well, that's what I was curious when you talk about the new entrants. Is it folks who are trying to go on vacation because they need a break? Uh, Is it folks who need to go? Is it business folks? Who is it that's coming up? And we've just got about 45 seconds here, and then we'll come back and talk some more. No problem. Probably about 3,000 flying hours this month, if not more, 3,500. And uh, about three quarters of it is personal, whether it's Hmm. shelter to shelter or it's just change of scenery. But I think some of it's reactive and some of it is uh, people that are moving on a personal level. Business is slowly coming back, but not nearly where we would normally see it. That's Sentient Jet President and CEO Andrew Collins. And, you know, what's interesting, I thought, Jason, one of the things he said, and he talked to about 
how they are different from, you know, the big major airlines. And he said commercial airlines have something like 700 touch points, right? So they need to think about how many people are involved and what that means for passenger safety. He says they've got about 20 or 30 touch points. So he goes, we already have a big advantage to start from a much better point when it comes to reopening and getting people back flying. Well, and you do wonder, right, if, especially, and this is at the high end, of course, but mm-hmm. if people are traveling less, do their budgets get a little bigger per trip? And right. certainly for businesses and maybe even for personal travel, is this something that people start to spend more on? You're listening to Bloomberg this week. Coming up, filmmaker Nancy Spielberg. Yep, she's Stephen's little sister. She tells us about the impact of the virus on Hollywood. And like our big brother, she's a storyteller at heart. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Today, we're bringing some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. And one of those conversations, Jason, was with Andrew Collins. He's the president and CEO of Sentient Jet. And, you know, they understandably initially saw drops in service and demand, but now it is back and it's got some interesting new trend lines. We are seeing, uh, you know, from a business standpoint, you know, I think a very interesting time. We saw the reaction to the pandemic in late March where we saw a lot of our flying volume drop uh, initially. And I, I can tell you that walking into April, it originally looked like we were probably about 10% of what our volume projects to be. And so that would have been about 100 legs. And I mean, it was an absolute low point. But rapidly, we started to see people that started to think about private jets a little bit different. And uh, honestly, I'm seeing people behave, you know, usually this is more about a, a lifestyle or a business productivity tool, but it's almost migrated over to a utility during this time. And uh, what we're seeing are people that want to control their environment. They want to control how many touch points, you know, they're exposed to. And so because of that, we're seeing a lot of new entrants and our volume has come back gangbusters in May. And, you know, I I could tell you it's a reaction to the pandemic, but uh, I tend to think that we're probably going to see a whole set of new entrants to flying privately based on this. And so... Andrew, as you as you think about this and you put it in the context of previous crises, both financial and and otherwise, and, and obviously 9-11 is the comparison that so many people make in terms of the, the scope of this and obviously two very different uh, tragedies in a way. But obviously that was probably the last time we saw travel just effectively go away for some period of time, although shorter uh, in duration then – you know, how do you think about the future of travel overall, and especially the future of air travel? So I think that air travel has changed forever. Um, I think that the way that we think about commercial airlines, you know, last year, I think two and a half million people a day would process to the TSA and commercial airlines. In April, it was somewhere around 90 to 100,000. So yeah. it, it's an industry that's been impacted, and I'm sure you've talked about it so much. And it's one that is so capital intensive that it feels like it's a tough model to pursue moving forward. I think really, truly, this notion of control, this notion of a limited environment, I don't know that that's the long term, but I certainly see in the, you know, the next 12 to 18 months, um, uh, really a focus on making sure people are, are 
at their least kind of exposed to crowds. Um, as far as the crises goes, you mentioned 9-11. 9-11 is actually when our business started to really uh, to, to kind of shine, unfortunately, um, from the incident. But commercial was only down for a little bit. Right. I was also here for the financial crises. And in the financial crises, a lot of the segment disappeared. This mm-hmm. is very different. In private, you know, not only did you have a high capital overhang coming in and a robust stock market, but we were in Q1 seeing record flying. So I think the exposure was significant. And I would just simply say that uh, as I watch kind of this, this whole volume increase in our business, it just tells me that people are probably going to consider private, whether that's aviation, whether that's a villa, whether that's some form of, you know, a limited exposure environment. Yeah. I think that's where we are for a little bit. Well, that's what I was curious when you talk about the new entrants. Is it folks who are trying to go on vacation because they need a break? Uh, is it folks who need to go? Is it business folks? Who is it that, that's coming up? And we've just got about 45 seconds here, and then we'll come back and talk some more. No problem. Probably about 3,000 flying hours this month, if not more, 3,500. And uh, about three quarters of it is personal, whether it's hmm. shelter to shelter or it's just change of scenery. But I think some of it's reactive and some of it is uh, people that are moving on a personal level. Business is slowly coming back, but not nearly where we would normally see it. That's Sentient Jet President and CEO Andrew Collins. And, you know, what's interesting, I thought, Jason, one of the things he said, and he talked to you about how they are different from, you know, the big major airlines. And he said commercial airlines have something like 700 touch points, right? So they need to think about how many people are involved and what that means for passenger safety. He says they've got about 20 or 30 touch points. So he goes, we already have a big advantage to start from a much better point when it comes to reopening and getting people back flying. Well, and you do wonder, right, if, especially, and this is at the high end, of course, but Mm -hmm. if people are traveling less, do their budgets get a little bigger per trip? And certainly for businesses and maybe even for personal travel, is this something that people start to spend more on? You're listening to Bloomberg this week. Coming up, filmmaker Nancy Spielberg. Yep, she's Stephen's little sister. She tells us about the impact of the virus on Hollywood. And like her big brother, she's a storyteller at heart. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 